Hey guys, Ben Dubose here with Rockets Wire doing this podcast on Monday, May 3rd, because now we're within a couple of weeks, less than two weeks actually, of the NBA season coming to an end. So we're getting close to some bigger picture off-season analysis, and the Rockets don't play again until Wednesday anyway, a couple of off days. So I think this is a good time to sort of step back from the day-to-day and look at more bigger picture what they're trying to do in this upcoming off-season that's going to be so massive for the rebuild and hopefully getting back to a contending level sooner rather than later. So this is going to be a little, well, certainly opinion-based, but just a little different than what I can typically do in writing. That's why I want to do it in a podcast format, throwback to my solo Locked on Rockets days, because some of this is just so hard to explain, especially in the depth required to get into the true nuance of this. So I want to explore what the Rockets are trying to do from a couple of levels. First, the timetable of a rebuild, and then second, why you should trust them to do this rebuild, led by general manager Rafael Stone and, of course, the ownership of Tillman Fertitta. I'm going to start with the timetable, because to me, that's where I think I view this a lot differently than a lot of people on Rockets Twitter. I've seen some comparisons to prior rebuilds in the 80s when or before they got Hakeem Olajuwon, and then of course the early 2000s between the Hakeem era and then the Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady. What's so different now compared to those previous eras, and I see people trying to project how many years it's going to be that the Rockets are bad before they begin their climb and get back to you know, first a playoff level and then contending. The entire structure of the NBA is dramatically different now than in those past eras. So I really don't believe that there's a true analog that you can have. For example, until 1985, and of course the Rockets drafted Hakeem in 1984, there was no draft lottery. There was a tight correlation between if you're really bad, which the Rockets are this year, the worst record in the NBA, then you know you're going to get a very high draft pick in the upcoming draft, and you can build around that player. Back then, there also wasn't nearly the movement in free agency. You didn't have the structure that you have now that makes it so easy for players to move from one team to the next. You also have right now more rings culture, where everyone knows they are judged, fairly or unfairly, I think, largely unfairly, but at this point it is what it is. Players want to win rings. We saw Kevin Durant going to Golden State sort of lay the blueprint for this, and you very rarely have players that play their entire careers or majority of their careers with one organization. That's just not the norm anymore. So you have a lot more player movement than you did back then, and you also have less of a correlation between being bad and getting a high pick in the lottery. Because back in the 80s, of course, Uh, or early 80s, I should say, and earlier, there was no draft lottery. If you were the worst team, you get the top pick. And then even when there was the draft lottery, up until the last couple of years, it was heavily, heavily weighted towards the teams that are the worst, i.e. the tanking era Sixers, getting the top picks, which of course led them to Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. The probabilities of the lottery are dramatically different now, and that's why the Rockets, even though their draft pick this year is top four protected, well, you can be the worst team, and you only have a 52% shot of being in the top four. So you cannot just be bad and know that you're going to get a high draft pick. And that's why I've said before, the pick swap, while it would certainly be a pain to lose the number five pick and fall to number 16, it's actually not as massive as some make it out to be, because quite frankly, the biggest penalty is losing that top four pick 
in the first place. That's what sucks so much is that you're not guaranteed to even get a true top-tier prospect, regardless of even if there's no pick swap. And that continues on to you know the 2022 and 2023 seasons when there's no pick swap involved. Well, the Rockets could easily be the worst team they could try to tank and still only get the number five or number six pick, which, you know, is it better than, say, number 16 if the pick swap activates with Miami? Sure. But is it going to get you a franchise changer? Probably not. So... Based on those realities, that's why I don't think the Rockets are looking at this truly as a draft-based rebuild. I feel like a lot of people on Twitter and in the fan base are, because that's how a lot of these rebuilds in the past have worked. And, you know, it can. You can point to the Sixers with Embiid and Simmons. You can point to the Mavs with Luka. You can point to the Bucks with Giannis. There are some examples of that. But I feel like it's getting fewer and further, uh, farther between because you can't rely on the draft as much anymore from a team building perspective with the changes the NBA has put into the draft lottery and probabilities. And in addition to that, of course, teams are more aware than ever of all the changes with regards to player movement, how easy it is via free agency trades, whatever it may be, to lure a top talent from another team. And so in my opinion, that's how the Rockets are looking at this. If they can get a Cade Cunningham type in the lottery, of course they would take it. They would love that. But the reality is the odds are against you in so many ways trying to pursue truly a draft-only based rebuild because, number one, you, you have to beat the odds. Even if you're the worst team, it's 50-50 as to whether you'll get even a top four pick and I believe less than 30% at getting a top two pick. So you have to beat the odds there. And then you have to beat the odds again because the player has to actually be good Ask the Sacramento Kings and Marvin Bagley. You can absolutely have a bust even that high. And then, even if you do get the high pick and you do draft right, it typically takes a few years for that player to develop, especially on the defensive end, into a true difference maker on just a playoff team, let alone a contender. These things take time. So you have to beat the odds several times in a row if you're actually going to build your next contender solely through the draft. And that's why I think, you know, the Rockets do have a lot of draft picks and they're going to take their swings and hopefully some of those will work out. But if and when they do, you look at that, in my opinion, in the modern NBA as a bonus. What the overall goal is for Raphael Stone is to make the Rockets attractive enough again to get the next big, I don't know, 2012 James Harden type that comes on the market, be it free agency, maybe it's similar to Harden in 2012, a trade situation in which the player wants out of the situation he's in, or there's some sort of financial dispute. We know, as evidenced by Harden going to Brooklyn, the team of his choosing, that players, even if they're under contract, control where they can be traded because they can make it very clear that they're not going to be happy in certain situations. And so the Rockets, they need to position themselves to be attractive, be it this offseason, the next deadline, the 2022 offseason. I've heard, and I've reported this before, the Rockets are being very cautious with regards to any long-term contracts because they want you know, the flexibility to create room if they need it in 2022. And at that point, now you do have some long-term money on the books, but by that point, you'll have John Wall and Eric Gordon entering the last year of their existing deals. So I think that you could conceivably move them relatively easily at that point if need be, or at least with Wall, make his salary a bit more bite-sized, if you will. But the point is, 
that, in my opinion, is where Raphael Stone is looking. Because if you can get an established star player, that's when it can turn really, really quickly. Now, how do you get an established star player? Well, they have to want to be there. And number one, you know, you can sell guys on markets and situations. For example, the Rockets had all the turmoil last offseason with James Harden and Russell Westbrook. They still lured Christian Wood, who's a very good player. And I think Christian Wood could even be better than what he's shown you this year. You have to remember that since he came back in March, he has not been anywhere close to 100% due to the ankle situation. And the Rockets lured Christian Wood even with so many things going wrong at that time. So, even being the worst team in the league, it doesn't mean that you're hopeless. But at the same time, certainly you're not at the forefront of the line for guys that truly have a lot of options. They want to win rings, the ring culture we established. So you want to the, make them think that they can win a ring in Houston. So how do you make them do that? Certainly winning games helps. But at the end of the day, squeezing out a few more wins here or there that's not the type of thing that drives the narrative, unless you also drive, go deep into the playoffs. But, of course, the Rockets are many steps away from that. I think what the Rockets are trying to do is create and improve their buzz factor. And that's why, for example, beating Milwaukee last week, it wasn't just that they won, it's how they did it with that historic 50-point, 10-assist game from Kevin Porter Jr., the youngest player in NBA history to do it at just 20 years old. That catches attention. We saw everyone around the league, including James Harden, actually, who, by the way, wink, wink, is a free agent in 2022, tweeting and talking about that. You want people to look at the Rockets and see this young core of Kevin Porter Jr., Jay Sean Tate, Christian Wood, and say, hmm, maybe if I go there, this team could really be something. Maybe Steven Silas, who clearly has relationships with star players around the league. We saw Stephen Curry of the Warriors go out of his way to praise Silas, and uh, Silas, of course, coached Curry as an assistant when Steph was a rookie back in 2009 in Golden State. But those are the types of things that you want to see. And in my opinion, that's where the draft plays in. And that's why, you know, I do agree that June 22nd, the draft lottery, do the Rockets get a top four pick, is a big, momentous deal for this franchise. But it's not so much that, well, if they don't get the top four pick, everything goes to hell and the outlook is dramatically changed because they don't have Jalen Suggs or Evan Mobley, whoever it may be. No, it's more that the opportunity to get a guy like Cade Cunningham or Jalen Suggs or whatever top prospect it may be, then you add them to Kevin Porter Jr., to Christian Wood, and that creates the type of buzz factor that players and especially agents around the league are going to look and say, hey, they're really building something in Houston. This could be big. So to me, it's less about the wins. It's less about, you know, just the lottery and player development. It's more how you win. It's more creating that buzz factor. Because I guess at a super high level, the, the, the way that I view this differently than so many others I think when it turns for the Rockets, it's going to happen very, very quickly. This is not going to be where they win a few more games in 2022, then 2021, and then a few more in 2023. I highly doubt that it's just sort of a slow build. I think it's going to be one day the right star is going to come on the market. The Rockets have all these future picks from... Obviously, the James Harden deal, but a few others as well. Robert Covington, P.J. Tucker. So they're well-positioned from an asset standpoint to strike, and the right player finds them attractive because of these young 
talented players that are in place and under contract for several years. Snap your fingers. A deal gets done. Hopefully a high lottery pick this year adds to that buzz and bam, they're back. Maybe not a contender overnight, but you can see pretty clearly just like with Harden where they went from, you know, could have been one of the NBA's worst teams and they were a playoff team year one. In my opinion, that's what's probably going to happen again. You're building for that big strike. I don't know when it's going to come, but it's less about, okay, you're going to slowly build from one year to the next and have all this internal growth from year to year chemistry and of course you shouldn't bank on that because we all know how quickly rosters change in the NBA I think it's more like you're just trying to get buzz however you can find it that's why the big KPJ game was important hopefully Christian Wood has a couple others down the stretch of this season and then we see what happens with lottery and then you just try and capitalize on that buzz in the offseason so it's less about prior eras where you knew you're gonna get a high draft pick you could build around these guys and typically they'd want to stay around no, it's an NBA where there's so much variability from year to year. Players move like crazy these days. You've just got to capitalize or, or put yourself in a position to capitalize on that dynamic, and that's what the Rockets are trying to do. So in terms of the, just a super macro view of it, I think it's going to take less time than people think, certainly not overnight, but the Rockets are going to put themselves in a spot where eventually they can get one of these big names, and then when they do, all of a sudden, it, it can be very quick, the turnaround to go from you know, bad, which they are now, to at least a playoff level. And of course, once you get to a playoff level, you can start talking about further upgrades to hopefully get yourself uh, to the true contending tier. Don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but it's less about just slow year-to-year -year organic development. It's more about how do you build that buzz factor. To me, that's the way you should think about this. And, you know, the draft lottery is a means to an end. If you get another high pick, that builds your buzz factor. And, you know, if you hit on that pick and then that you get Cade Cunningham and he turns into the next Kevin Durant or whatever it may be, great, but take all that as a bonus. I think the better way to look at it is from the standpoint of just how do you continually build that buzz? That can be sort of the uh, catchphrase for the Rockets, if you will, although of course it's better if it's the Charlotte Hornets. But anyway, you get the idea. And as for examples of that, you can point to the last two NBA champions, the 2020 Los Angeles Lakers, things turned when they got LeBron James, the 2019 Toronto Raptors when they swung the deal for Kawhi Leonard. This year's Phoenix Suns, who are now number one in the Western Conference, I believe, things really got them to the next level when they were in position to trade for Chris Paul, who came out in the last week, wanted to be there. He could have been in Philadelphia. He wanted to be in Phoenix and certainly drafting well. Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton played well, uh, and it played into that, but it was that streak in the bubble that made them sort of open eyes around the league, and all of a sudden they get Chris Paul, and bam, they're at the top of the Western Conference. The Miami Heat, who were in the finals last year, it was their deal, them closing it with Jimmy Butler in the 2019 offseason rather than the Rockets that largely put them on track to get there. In my opinion, that is the modern template. Many of those teams didn't have or don't have high draft picks, perhaps DeAndre Ayton being the one exception. Those are kind of, in my opinion, the new model of NBA rebuilds in which it's not so much like the old days where most of these teams, you can point to the Bulls taking Jordan number three overall, the Rockets taking Akeem number one overall, and then those players develop within an organization over a period of years, and it's just sort of a linear progression. That's not how it typically works these days, and I think those types of rebuilds in terms of sort of the new model are only going to increase in prevalence in the years ahead now that the draft lottery is not weighted as it used to be or anywhere close to the way it used to be. In my opinion, most teams, and I think the Rockets are firmly among them, you take what you get in terms of star-level players that can be the foundation of a championship team, you take that from the lottery 
as a bonus. If that works out for you, fantastic. But the backbone of what you're trying to do is capitalize on this wave of player movement by striking somewhere else. Free agency, trade, maybe a combination of those things, because of course, the more top tier talents you can get, the better. But that to me is what they're really trying to do. And the draft picks they have, they play into that because, well, number one, I mean, they could make your team more attractive, but more likely, they're also really good trade commodities, as Rafael Stone has alluded to several times. So that's, in my opinion, how you should be thinking about the rebuild. The other thing I wanted to cover is why you should trust the Rockets to pull off this plan. Because, of course, the first part is what they're trying to do. Secondly, they have a first-time GM and an owner who does not have a high approval rating in Tillman Fertitta, uh, first your GM wrapping up his first year, Raphael Stone. So I can sit here and tell you guys what they're trying to do. But then the other part of the equation is, well, can we trust these guys to get it done? And I can't tell you 100% that it's going to work out. However, I do think a few of the narratives are overblown, and I want to explain why going into the offseason. The main thing that I see that I want to push back on, I see a lot of takes that, well, the Rockets fell from a contending level to worst team in the league so quickly. There's so much whiplash to how increasingly this thing spiraled out of control. So there must be some huge disaster and thus no reason to have confidence that these guys are the ones that are going to lead you out of it. In my opinion, that's not accounting for how unique and sensitive the modern NBA model is. This is where I think having a lot of crossover with fans of football, baseball, soccer, don't account for you know just how sensitive the NBA model is when it comes to building a contender and sustaining it. Now, you can sustain a very good NBA team for a long time, but to have a truly contending level team, which even though the Rockets didn't win a title, they absolutely did for the better part of eight years with James Harden, it requires having a true top shelf, top five, top 10 type player and what you have to do to keep an elite talent satisfied and willing to stick with your organization for that long, it prevents you from having a pipeline. And so that's why I keep an open mind to this ownership group and this uh, basketball operations team being able to potentially figure this out. And I think there's a lot of people who look at football teams or baseball and say, well, you know, for example, in Houston, the Astros in the last two off seasons have lost Garrett Cole, a Cy Young level pitcher, and George Springer, a World Series MVP, and yet they're still a very good team. And people will say, well, why can't you build a pipeline? Why can't you have the right culture? And even if you lose James Harden, okay, people will accept that you're not going to be a championship team, at least not right away, but why do you have to be the worst team? The difference in the NBA is how sensitive the model is towards these top tier talents. Obviously in baseball, you can have a great pitcher, but he's going to pitch only once every five days, starting pitcher that is. Um, a hitter like George Springer, okay, he's probably only going to come up four times a game. And then even when he comes up the four times a game, they can pitch around him. They can intentionally walk him. Um, it, it's not nearly the same as when James Harden can play 35 to 40 minutes a night and he can dominate the ball and you can sort of run your offense through him every single possession. He can make the decisions. And of course the attention paid to him uh, always gets better shots for the teammates because of just sort of the gravity that he has on the court. Whereas when George Springer isn't batting, I mean, he doesn't really do a whole heck of a lot for the other batters. It's just the nature of um, the sport is very different. The other factor though, is that beyond just the on-court impact from game to game to keep a James Harden level player satisfied in the modern NBA, 
it takes so many deals. You have to constantly cash in your chips to sort of keep up with the arms race. You don't have to do that in other sports. I'm going to continue with the Astros analogy. They have a young outfielder named Kyle Tucker who is off to actually a slow start in 2021. I'm sure he'll figure it out. All the analytics point out that he's been very, very unlucky. He was a very good player in 2020, and he should be a cornerstone of their outfield for years to come. There were absolutely deals in 2018 and 2019 where the the Astros could have gotten upgrades from from moving Kyle Tucker. He was highly sought after on the trade market and one of the top young prospects in baseball. They did not make any of those deals because they were able to take a long-term vision and know that you know we might lose a George Springer type and we need to replace that a cheap, basically, prospect from within and sort of keep churning out internally. Basketball, the Rockets had to keep cashing in their chips to stay at the top tier with James Harden and keep him bought in. Otherwise, this would have blown up several years ago. The closest analogy that I can come up with, you know, in terms of internal development from the Rockets in recent years would be Clint Capella, who, of course, was drafted in 2014. Since then, the Rockets have actually traded their draft picks generally before even making them for upgrades. But Clint Capella, still a very good young center, the Rockets traded him in February 2020, along with draft considerations, the deal that brought in Robert Covington at the time was 29. Look, I don't think there's any question that Clint Capella is a better player right now and would make you a better basketball team than Robert Covington, and probably better than the draft picks that they got for Covington in the offseason when they traded him to Portland. They got a couple of what's probably going to be like mid-first. Hopefully they get that this year. Knock on wood. We'll wait and see. But the point is, Clint Capella is several years younger, a very good young center. There is no doubt that keeping Clint Capella would have raised your floor scenario and prevented you from falling off like we've seen the Rockets do this year. But to keep James Harden bought in, the way to maximize their championship odds with that group last year with Russell Westbrook was to get the defensive versatility and three-point shooting of Robert Covington and to go small. That was the key to sort of maximizing. And then, unfortunately, of course, Russell Westbrook was hurt with the quad and the bubble, and so we never got to see him truly go all out in the playoffs, and then everything blew up in the offseason. But I absolutely understand what Gerald Morey was trying to do. He was trying to maximize that specific group. And even though Robert Covington, in a vacuum, is he as good a basketball player as Clint Capella? No, and certainly not when you consider the age and the years ahead, but they just sort of had to do that deal because that's what it took to maximize that team and to sort of give James Harden a chance. It just, unfortunately, it did not work out. That's just sort of how it goes sometimes. And that's very different than other sports where you can take a longer term view. You can, you know, balance between winning now and sort of keeping a pipeline for the future. In the NBA, it's so much about having a top five, top 10 talent, and then the competition, you know, informally teams and players all across the league are always trying to recruit uh, or or were when James Harden was in Houston to other teams. And so the Rockets are aware of that. And so they constantly have to, you know, go all in with their chips and that's what they did. And so it's impossible to keep sort of the pipeline going to where if the player leaves, then you can still stay at a decent level. You can do that in baseball, in football, in soccer. Maybe one exception is quarterback in the NFL. But other than that, you know, you can have a pipeline and keep it going, barring 
extreme injuries. But in this case, in basketball, you can't. And then you combine that with the extreme injuries that the Rockets had this year, uh, just the historic wave, Christian Wood, John Wall, Eric Gordon, basically every key player. And, you know, you get to the worst record in the NBA, and it's really not that shocking. Heck, we saw it last year with the Golden State Warriors, and they didn't even have, well, no, it was a combination. They did lose Kevin Durant in free agency. Then you had the injuries to uh, Clay Thompson and Steph Curry. And we saw them go from, you know, the five-time defending Western Conference champions to worst team in the league. Uh, it happens. But then the other factor in all of this, you know, that's sort of how you can explain it from like a basketball operations perspective. And I think most people on some level will understand that, that the NBA model is different. The other factor, of course, is ownership. And I understand why uh, Tillman Fertitta does not have a high approval rating in Houston. However, I do believe that some of the narratives, especially nationally, are overdone, and I don't think that this is necessarily a James Dolan situation where it's going to be almost impossible to win at a high level. For starters, what's the, you know the biggest gripe that people have with Tillman Fertitta since he took over the ownership in October 2017? Everyone will say he didn't pay the luxury tax with James Harden. This is true. That is a completely fair criticism. However, the vast majority of NBA teams do not pay the luxury tax. We saw the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, which we grill Tillman Fertitta, and I understand why you can, and it's, you know, again, that's totally fair to be annoyed by. I get that. You have James Harden in his prime. You didn't go all in. You didn't use your bird rights to retrain uh, Trevor Ariza. It's fair to be annoyed by that. And, you know, if you want to go a step further and say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't be quite as invested in the team, buying tickets, uh, watching games, time, money, whatever it may be, you know, I'm not willing to go there, but I understand it. That's your right as a fan. Completely understand saying, hey, why wouldn't this ownership group truly go all in with James Harden in his prime? Yes. It is fair to be annoyed by that. However, when understanding how you build a contender in the NBA, it's important to know the broader context. And the reality is most teams don't pay the tax. And that includes contenders. Again, the Milwaukee Bucks with the two-time defending MVP, let Malcolm Brogdon go, who's a heck of a lot better than Trevor Ariza. That's a young, borderline all-star level player that they let go because of the luxury tax. It happens. And so I think, you know, there's such an intense focus on this particular market. And I understand why they're your team. But at the same time, when it comes to building a contender, you have to understand your competition. And even if we concede that Tillman Fertitta is unlikely to pay the tax, and I'm not willing to go there yet, I think it's a small sample. But even if you concede that, okay, it's really not that rare. The vast majority of teams do not pay, including contenders, the luxury tax each year. It does not have to be the death knell for building your basketball team. And the Rockets were very good in those years as well. Now, I'm not willing to give up on him you know, paying the luxury tax. I mean, do I take statements he says at face value? No, because everybody you know, says things for PR. Oh, we're going to go all out, blah, blah, blah. The proof is in the pudding. That's just not Tillman Fertitta giving interviews. That's basically every owner in every sport. That happens. Um, in terms of will he actually do it, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. But you know, the Bucks after the fiasco with Brogdon, you know, they did take a bit of a hit for that. And, of course, they were sort of in jeopardy of potentially losing Giannis. And they went all out and they got Drew Holiday and they signed him to that deal. And so they've spent more aggressively since then and they learned from it. And, you know, my big sort of high-level thoughts of the Rockets and the Tillman Fertitta era from an ownership perspective, I've said this before, but I think the biggest thing that led to them making mistakes 
was that the first year came way too easily. He bought that team in the 2017 offseason, and it was ready-made to immediately be a contender. And they were the best team in the NBA. 65 wins. We all know what should have happened. Uh, basically a hamstring away from the title. And they were the best team. And they didn't even pay the luxury tax that year. And, of course, the reason why, they had Chris Paul and Trevor Ariza on the last year of their deals that were signed a few years earlier on the previous uh, salary cap. So the overall value of that team on the open market was not necessarily reflected in the salaries because they had guys that were in the last year of previous deals, and those guys were up in the subsequent offseason. They kept Chris Paul, but they let um, Trevor Ariza go. They let Luke Bamute go. They thought they could replace the production you know, or at least 80% of it cheaper with guys like James Ennis, Michael Carter-Williams, Carmelo Anthony. They largely struck out, uh, and it absolutely took a toll. They also, you know, they ditched Anthony Melton, still a good young role player in the NBA, to shed the contract of Ryan Anderson. And yeah, those are absolutely uh, fair criticisms. I would just point out that I think a lot of other owners probably would have done uh, similar things. And I think as far as the motivations, you know, certainly being cheap is part of it, but I think the other thing, they thought that it was going to come easy. That first year, they were so much better than everyone else. They did not fully appreciate the fragility of being that good. I believe that they thought, and certainly Tillman's should be held accountable. He's part of it. But I think there's other people in the organization that had similar views that you know they could replace these guys with cheaper alternatives. And as long as they had you know the true core, James Harden and Chris Paul and Mike D'Antoni and P.J. Tucker, that it would ultimately be fine. It wasn't. Well, I guess it was fine from the standpoint they were still a very good team, but they weren't able to uh, get back quite to the level of the year before. And that's why even though Chris Paul didn't go out in uh, 2019, they weren't able to beat the Warriors. Now, Chris Paul that year, because of additional injuries, was not quite the same player. Uh, That's neither here nor there. And then all that led to sort of uh, the panicked rush trade, which is a combination of a lot of factors. One, they felt they had to deal Chris Paul and uh, draft picks for Russell Westbrook. That's an entirely different conversation. But... um, The bottom line is they did not appreciate the fragility in the 2018-2019, or going into the 2018-2019 year, of the foundation that they had. And then ever since then, they've been trying to sort of catch up, you know, the dying gasp of the Harden era, uh, the, the Russell trade more than anything else was just sort of a panic move, trying to catch lightning in a bottle. And of course, it went bust. And now not only did they lose the better player in Chris Paul, but now they have all these future draft considerations that they owe to Oklahoma City as well. And it could be very painful, of course, if uh, they end up going from pick five to like pick 17, 16, 18, whatever it is with the pick swap this year. Uh, Fingers crossed that doesn't happen. But the point is, was it a mistake? Were there mistakes made? Yes. But number one, I don't think that Tillman Vertita is in that rare of a stratosphere in terms of would other owners around the NBA do things that differently? A few would, but at the same time, there's a lot of others I think would handle it fairly similarly. And I also think there's hope that, look, he was a very young owner. I do think things have improved to a large degree since then. Now you don't see it, uh, or no one's really talking about it because, well, the record right now is what it is, but you could see a scenario where, like Milwaukee, they learn from that failed experiment and they appreciate the fragility of it going forward a lot more. I don't know that that's going to happen. I'm not saying that you're wrong in your criticisms. You certainly have every right as a Houston sports fan to be annoyed that this team did not go truly all in with James Harden in his prime. Totally get all of that. All I am saying is that in the grand scheme, recognize number one, the sample size, 
And number two, the broader perspective. This is not that rare in terms of what their payroll is. Even this year, it's still top tier in regards to the league overall, which is kind of sad given how bad they are, but that's a different discussion. And, you know, I guess my view on Tillman Fertitta, and I think you can lump this in with Raphael Stone as as well, because certainly there's things you can quibble about. You know, should they have taken Karis LeVert and Jared Allen instead of, you know, the Milwaukee first-round draft pick and Oladipo, which eventually became uh, Kelly Olenek and Avery Bradley, and the Miami pick swap with Brooklyn next year? Maybe. I mean, those are reasonable criticisms, and Raphael Stone is so young, he hasn't much of a, of a track record. But sort of the overlapping theme that I would say for both Tillman Fertitta and Raphael Stone is keep an open mind. I'm not going to sit here and try to gas you up and say, man, I know this is going to be a top-tier GM. This is a top-tier owner. No, I'm not saying that because we don't have that data. And in the case of Fertitta, we actually have evidence to the contrary that some of his decisions with regards to the tax and shedding payroll did limit this team in the past. That's 100% true. However, what I am saying is that there is a massive gap between saying, okay, this probably isn't, at least not right now, a top five you know, ownership slash executive team, and oh my God, this must be bottom five, terrible, so much of an albatross, think James Dolan of the Western Conference, that no matter what you do, no matter what your plan is, that it's all going to go to hell. No, there is a middle ground in which we can acknowledge mistakes were made, things should have been handled better, yet this is not so bad that it's going to just automatically unravel even a good plan to build this team and to bring it back. There is middle ground. We can be critical of Tillman Fertitta and even Raphael Stone, for that matter, without automatically jumping to this is bottom five in the league. This is 100%, no matter what, going to hold you back. We can acknowledge the fact that there's middle ground, that just because someone is not top five doesn't mean there's bottom five in terms of the competition. And also, it's a small sample, so things can change. You can learn as the years progress and do things differently. Again, not trying to sort of gas them or you up and say that this is 100% going to be fine and this is going to be elite. No, like most teams, the Rockets, in my opinion, are not at truly the forefront of the league when it comes to you know, either the executive team, at least not at this point, ownership. All I'm saying is that I also don't think it's a given that they're at the bottom. Like most teams, they're somewhere in between. And if the stars align, you can still win that way, just as they almost did in 2018. So I guess that's sort of my view going into the offseason. I don't know how quickly any of this is going to happen. But again, first half of the show, that's sort of my timetable, what I think they're trying to do. And then this part is just my overall uh, view of why you should keep at least some hope for this era. Not saying buy-in, woo-woo, you know, rally caps. You know, I understand the criticisms, but at the same time, you also don't have to take it to an extreme level. So anyway, that's sort of my thoughts going into the 2021 offseason. Hope for the best. And uh, I guess all I can say as we wrap this up, uh, check out Rocketswire if you don't already, rocketswire.usatoday.com. And of course, I'm Ben Dubose. You can follow me at Ben Dubose on Twitter. Thanks, guys. Talk to you online.